guys know our rhythms well. That's awesome. I love it. Well, hello. We are a gathering of Jesus followers who love God and love others. You know, uh, even if that wasn't our mission, that is our mission. You know that from Scripture, maybe. And as we live out the love of Jesus, we, are, we, we gather together for communal celebration to grow in the model of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior and to go as he commanded us so that all others may know Jesus' love and embrace the life and love of Jesus. That's our call. That's our mission. Uh, thanks, Don, for reading the passage for us this morning. It is a gift. And he's, he's probably wondering, what is he going to do with this passage of Scripture? Somebody asked me yesterday, I was in a phone call, and they like, so, Pastor, what are you going to preach on? The beheading of John the Baptist. And there was just kind of like this dead silence on the other end. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Hopefully I do it justice in these next few moments. The title today is Only One King. Only One King. Well, I hope y'all had a uh, great July 4th. Some of you may have gone to some parades, grilled out, took it easy, watched a few fireworks. Uh, it is part of who we are. Wonderful day to celebrating our country, country's independence from its mother country, England. And some of us like to poke jabs back at them every once in a while, don't we? We are 247 years young or old. Um, I watched the Tour de France, and I am reminded, uh, if you're not into cycling, it's okay, I am reminded how young we really are as a country, and uh, when you look at some of the buildings that have been existing in some of those areas for such a long time, but we are uh, 247 years young as a democratic republic. I'm not here to confuse you. Go look it up. It is true. <clears throat> We celebrate many freedoms in our country for which I'm grateful. I start here, so just hang on. The USA is one of, of, one of between 195 or more countries, depending on what country you're from and how they want to be counted, in the world according to several sources that you can find. Each one of those countries act independent from the other and has their own governmental process and procedures by which they abide by and expect their citizens to abide by. Yet the Bible, if you were to open it up, declares this, and Peter tells us, dear friends, if you're followers of Jesus, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Peter is reminding the followers of Jesus that we're not residents of the world uh, we may be citizens of our country, but we're definitely not first and foremost citizens of the country we live in. I'm grateful for our freedoms. I'll say that again. Some of you are like, uh-oh, where is he going? I'm grateful for our freedoms. Jesus' invitation, and we've been walking through Matthew's gospel for a long time, is to come and follow this come and follow, though, ushers our allegiance to his kingdom, and he is the king of that kingdom. Before Jesus physically pitched his tent with humanity, through his birth, many 
many, or uh, through his birth through Mary, excuse me, the Hebrew writer writes in Hebrew 11 about those who came before Jesus, this, those faith-filled saints we read in that chapter 11, all these people died still believing that what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads on this earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. Now, I, I would agree that they were looking for the promised land, some of those saints that are declared, but they were looking beyond the promised land because they already knew deep in their hearts there was an ache for something more, something greater, because they knew the creator. They knew him. While many were truly nomadic saints, others had found the earthbound promised land. Yet even so, the writer indicates those who were faith-filled followers of God, as I just said, knew what we know. This cannot be all there is. It is too broken, and our hearts and lives yearn and ache for more than this world and life could ever offer and will ever offer. While this is so, many of us have come to recognize our home and our lives are found in the kingdom And with King Jesus as our king, we still, though, even though that is the case, we still struggle with being bound to this earth and and not ready for the new heaven and new earth. This is the reality we live in. This is the tug of war we're in. What might be those things which are keeping you bound here and not solely having King Jesus as your king? As we walk through this passage, as we walk into this passage today, I want to share with you about a 19th century writer whose uh, guide, uh, which was named after him, which is also used by the writers of the, uh, the Bible. It's called Chekhov's Gun. And if any of you are familiar with Star Trek, no, not Star Trek, not that Chekhov. <clears throat> Chekhov's Gun is a dramatic principle that suggests that, that details within a story or play will contribute to the all overall narrative. This is vitally important for us to understand, uh, not only about other literary things that we read, but specifically about the Bible. That uh, that Chekhov believed that that everything written in the Bible or in a in a piece of work needed to contribute to its overall end. The writers of the Bible believe this same rule so much so that they they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, by the words. This is crucial, especially around a passage we're reading today, folks, because most of you are like going, why, and we're going to get to it, why is it here? What is going on? That all scripture was inspired and breathed out by the Holy Spirit, and that there were human co-authors in that process, which is incredible in and of itself, isn't it? To think that, that, Paul could be writing along on behalf of the Lord, this Paul, right down here, could be writing along, and he's co-authoring with the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe, in order to give us something of substance that will help to direct our lives and make sure that we're headed into the line of truth. This is vitally important. 
Not only that, but papyrus was very expensive. Maybe not as expensive as once I thought, but it's still expensive. And so to write words on a piece of paper is not the same process we have today. You know, I, I get it. Some of us just saddle up to our computer and write out a few sentences, and we go, no, 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 that won't work, and we dabble over it. That was not the case in this time and day. They didn't even have a little tablet, you know. Some of us maybe think, oh, they pulled out a notebook and just wrote this over and over again. By Probably not. More than likely, this is really a kind of a, this, this divine word was so solely given that it's, its words are vitally important to us, every single one of them. And so even today, as we look at it, it becomes important. Even if you're not a believer in Jesus and you're here, and others, other, others in academia who have read Matthew and love Jesus uh, in the form of his teaching, but maybe not as Lord, have come to recognize that the Gospels are just a masterpiece in them themselves, and Matthew being one of them. It's an incredible work and compilation put together uh, with, with a defined purpose and design. And so to casually just cast that aside, or casually even to read Scripture, or not even to read Scripture, becomes kind of a, a, you know, an endemic on ourselves. This kind of this, this little s- statement we say about ourselves if we, if we say we're a follower. Because Jesus, Jesus is the most compelling person that ever walked the face of the earth. Those even outside of saying, I'm a follower, I've decided to follow Jesus, would say that. And we have quotes from many of them throughout the years. So this compilation, again, I stress the idea of, of the way the, the structure of the Bible and how it's been put together is, is, uh, is divine in its ways. So we have been walking through Scripture, and if you remember, Matthew starts with this kind of this opening with this uh, like grand invitation to come and taste and see. I think that was a word I used early on in, in many of the passage, around the many of the passage at the very beginning, because Jesus is kind of saying, come and follow me, come and taste to see the kingdom. And he began to do multiple healings. And because of multiple healings and the powerful word proclaimed, people came to know Jesus as they you know, came to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. But for some odd reason, we're turning a corner. Have you felt it? And maybe you're not following along in Matthew because you've been following along in the epistles and do that too. But we're turning a corner in this gospel. And it's a harsh corner, but it's a corner that's asking the question of not only those there, but as those of us here, (laughs) are you going to persevere with me? Are you going to take the hard road it takes to follow me? And each story Matthew carves with the Holy Spirit's guidance to build this case to you and to me and to us. And one of those those individuals that he reintroduces to our storyline is John the Baptizer. So let's go back a little bit and do some refreshing on who John the Baptist is. In Matthew 3, 1 through 3, you don't have to go there if you don't want to. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So we now kind of remember or jogged again that John is the one who not only uh, is the one who's beheaded in the story we're in today, but is the one who points the finger and says, this is Jesus. And not only that, but Jesus and John have eerie similarities in their storyline, don't they? Announced by angels, predicted by prophets, their lives laid out for all to read, if you will, and all to almost a lot of people to know before they're even born. That's incredible. So while John followed in the footsteps of, of many prophets who had gone before, there is something vastly different about John than any of the other prophets. He got to see what he was proclaiming. Can you imagine? What a beautiful thing. Not only that, but he got to baptize him. You can skip down in chapter 3, verse 13, and you'll see that, that, G, that John also was able to baptize Jesus. John understood that Jesus had been the one in whom had been, he had been preparing. In another biography, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, Jesus, it, it, of Jesus, it's recorded that John not only uh, is preparing the way of the Lord, but he visually sees him before, uh, before, before a bunch of other people, and he points to him and says, hey, this is the Messiah. This is all important to a point I'm getting to, I promise. It's one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture, really. You think about it. This is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. John also says, he must become greater, I must become less, right? Even though we have these passages that point out that John knew who Jesus was, that he wasn't just a cousin, but that he was Jesus the Messiah, the king, he becomes confused like many others in the storyline of Jesus about who Jesus really is. And you kind of scratch your head. Matthew chapter 11, we have this passage of scripture where uh, it says, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? We've been expecting, right? Or should we keep looking for somebody else? You know, I I, kind of wonder as I walk through this passage of scriptures, if we don't find ourselves in that place every so often too. We know, but then we're like, are you? We know, but we are you? John asks the question and Jesus responds by telling them to go back and tell them what you have heard and see that the blind, blind see the lame walk and those with leprosy are cured and the dead were raised to life and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then he added this to them. To, to send back with them. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Wow. Hang on, John. John's disciples were leaving, and it doesn't stop. Jesus turns to the crowd in the same uh, chapter and turns to the crowd and tells them about John the Baptist. He, <laughs> Jesus states in verse 11 of Matthew 11, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. 
I mean, this is powerful statements about one who's kind of gone, hey, are, are you still the Messiah? <laughs> I thought you were the Messiah. And you have to kind of go back and go, why would he ask the question? Why would he, why would he respond that way? Probably some of the very same reasons we respond is because the Messiah is not acting like the Messiah we want to see. I mean, John's like, look, because uh, I'm in jail, you could release, you know, you, you could get me out of this situation. It's time to overthrow the oppressing government. It's time to speak up. I mean, this is incredible. Just the, the, the pointedness of where we're at. While John shared the similarities of Jesus, he had great confirmations in his whole lifetime, as we've already talked about. John questioned whether Jesus was the Messiah because he wasn't ask, acting like him. I mean, John's faith wavered so much. I mean, he knew, but he was wondering so much that he had to go, hey, go ask him, make sure. This is the last time we hear from John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel until the passage we are in today. And this is the passage today. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That is why he can do such miracles. As we open this passage today, we come to understand that John the Baptist is not alive, he's dead. So the rest of the story is a telling of how he, how he dies. And the, miracul- the miracles that Herod hears about are not a- John's miracles. They're about Jesus himself. But Herod has such respect, you hear it, such respect for John and the power and authority that John had as an individual for God that he's like, hey, this this got to be John. I think this is wild. This view of John himself, or John by Herod himself, is incredible. Verse 3, for Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. John had been telling Herod, it's against the law for you to marry her. Now, we'll we'll keep it as much up here as I possibly can, all right? But it's right there on the page. Now, Herod was a part of the Jewish ruling, uh, was part Jewish, a part Jewish ruler installed by the Roman government to rule over the area of Galilee. Uh, There's a reason that Roman people chose him um, and put him in place, and he was governor over that area. And as you may guess, Herod was not liked like by the Jewish people. One, he wasn't fully Jewish in their, in their minds and hearts. And there are many other reasons of which I'll, I'll just dip my toe in a little bit why they didn't like him. Um, the other is that he sided with the Rome against the Jew, his own Jewish people. But John had issue with Herod because he maintained... He married his brother's wife, which was a direct violation of the Torah. Check out Leviticus 18. There's a whole series of, don't do this. It's not good. It's not right. Herod divorced his first wife, 
and then had an affair with his sister-in-law, who then he married. That's who he's married to right now, or in this story. This was such a known act that the father of Herod's, uh, the father of uh, his first wife created a border war over, with Herod over a scandal. So this was not covered up. Herod didn't hide these things. He did them with full knowledge, full understanding. The question that may and should come to our minds is, why is John picking on Herod regarding this specific thing? He had so many other things he could have gone after Herod about. Well, we do know that Herod not only wanted, he he wanted to not only play uh, this role of governor or king, but he wanted greater power and authority. He wanted more and more power. And greed begets greed, as you know, and it continues to feed itself. And John, knowing the truth of Herod, calls him out for being phony. That it, the, the way he was going about his, his life was, was less than stellar, we could say. So in, in case we're thinking that it was Herod's bruised ego that got him locked up, which may be a little bit of it, it was probably more the fact that John was prophetic, a prophetic voice in Herod's life that could cost him his power and prestige, his kingship, if he could have raised and revolted the people against. I mean, this was where it was going. So instead of having him persist on the streets about, and that's probably what was happening, I mean, he may have stood outside the the castle and everything, but spoke widely, spoke broadly against what had transpired. Not a governmental thing, per se, but a religious order thing. Herod places him in jail. Verse 5, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the right. Again, this honor of him, because of all the people believed John was a prophet. Remember, uh, Herod needed the favor of Israel. He needed to kind of walk this fine line to not only gain the favor of Rome, but also to gain the favor of Israel at the same time. But at a birthday party for Herod, Herodias' daughter performed a dance that greatly pleased him. Now, I'll have a palate cleanser in a few moments. You'll understand what I'm talking about when I get through this section We need to know that birthday parties in the first century were completely secular in nature. Uh, And oftentimes they lent lent themselves to uh, debauchery, heavy drinking, lust-filled activities, which are counter the kingdom, devoid of love, respect, and honor. Jesus calls us to to have for another human being. The one dancing for Herod is his own stepdaughter, but is also his own niece, who is not wearing much at all, if anything at all. Of which her own mother, this is the wickedness of this whole situation, of which, is, which her own mother probably gave permission to do. That's heavy. Yet, It's a terrible set of circumstances, terrible, wicked set of circumstances. She was probably only 12 to 14 years old at the time. Herod's family is messed up. Let me, if I may, go a little bit further. So Herod's father, from the Christmas story, 
was married, uh, was married and had uh, married to ten women and had ten sons. This is just kind of the, the wickedness of the whole situation. And three of the sons he murders because he, he thinks that they're going to take his power. They're going to take his position. So he murders his own sons. This is, this is Herod's dad. Herod the father had a sister named Salome. She had a daughter named Bernice who married one of Herod's ten sons who was also his cousin. <laughs> they had a daughter named Herodias. She grew up and married. I mean, it just, you, do, you see the, do you see all of this? So John's not... John's not speaking against governmental things. He's speaking against just pure wickedness and the aversion against what the Torah calls for of living pure and holy lives. Here's a truckload of puppies for you. That's right. Yeah, you got it. Aren't they cute? (laughs) Good. I don't even like talking about it, but it's there. So what Matthew introduces us to in these passages are what we come to call rejection narratives. Rejection narratives. Um, These narratives... Is, this is the corner we turned. A few weeks ago, we talked about one. It was more like a hometown rejection, if you will. Uh, hometown, as a reminder, Jesus went back to his hometown, right? And they were amazed at his teaching and the miracles. But they could not get through the fact that he grew up next door to him. I mean, that's bottom line. That's exactly what happened. Like, hey, don't we know his dad and his mom? Hey, we even know his mom's name and, you know, all of this. And they're like, no way. I mean, they were amazed, right? They were amazed at his miracles and his teaching, but they went, nah, we'll pass on Jesus being the Messiah. So Matthew introduces us uh, into the rejection narratives with that one, but then we have this one today, uh, a power and authority rejection. Power and authority will not welcome the kingdom and the kingdom's message ever ever. There's too much lust, greed, and hunger for power. Disobedience by those in power and authority to everything found in the Sermon on the Mount is what got, got John killed. It's what got John killed. Herod's flagrant lifestyle in light of the Torah, or we may just upgrade it in light of the Bible, uh, now uh, got him killed. And Jesus continues to raise the bar on what it means to be holy and live for him. Jesus has always reached the margins of society and and receives repentance and acceptance. And he never is looking to seek for power over the authorities. I I hope you see that in Jesus' life and his, his navigation of it. He was never about usurping, I mean, to take the power. He already had it. He didn't need to do that. Now, Matthew counters that reception that's early on that we talked about in the gospel with the rejections we are now seeing in the gospel. But what do these mean mean to us? And why are they here? You know, what it, what's, what's the purpose of these? 
let me just share a, f- a few similarities before I start to answer that question G- between Jesus and John. They both spoke the truth to power. They did no crime. Yet when they spoke the truth to power, they, fou- they found themselves in the mess of other people's greed. And that's why John, in the storyline, is de- he's dead. Herod, I mean, what's been noted by scholars is it's usually guys who have the in for Jesus, but this is one of the only places in Scripture where, where the women led the way. Jesus, Herod just wanted to keep him jailed and silenced. The women did not like also what he said in this case. So why does Matthew place this story here in the middle of the bio, Jesus' biography? From Jesus' reception of Jesus to the rejection of Jesus. This passive pushback uh, that we kind of see in the margins to now hostile scorn for who he is. In the middle of all this, John is beheaded for no good reason at all. His head carried out on a plate and disciples come to take his headless body away for a proper burial. The question that comes to our minds is if we're followers of Jesus, yeah, the question is, what about the followers of Jesus? But ultimately, this is a foreshadowing, and I think you can see this, of Jesus himself and what's going to transpire. See, the kingdom message and, and fidelity will always be an affront to the powers that be. Always to any power that be no matter how much they say they are for you. John simply pointed out that Herod was not the king and would not be king. He just kept on reinforcing it. He's not the king, and it's not his kingdom. The message of the kingdom is at odds with every government in the world. Every government. They exist in a broken world to reduce chaos as much as they possibly can, and some do it better than others, It all is done in that way, and it's done by generally coercion. Some force, some level of uh, behavior modification, if you will. And again, as I said, some governments do this as best as they can, but others are far greatly diminished fashion, as we know around the world. But all done inside this shell of a broken world in sin. And this is the contrast that Jesus is showing us and that John, I believe, shows us too, that that's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom kingdom doesn't work out of coercion or intimidation or power grabs, but it works out of the dominion of love, a place where people have the opportunity to choose. It's this self-sacrificing love that brings about change and transformation, not only in individuals, but in groups and communities and has and will continue throughout. This is what we're being faced with. That is the crux of what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture. And the question that continues to beg us is, what are we going to do about this? But let me give you a few illustrations of, uh, well, that may cause us pause or may make us think a little bit. So the oath of citizenship in America has 
this statement. And if you're born here, you may not even know this, uh, but if you want to become a citizen, you know what this is about. It says this, and I'm not going to read all of them. I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure the all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, uh, uh, potentant and state or sovereignty of whom I, which I have uh, heretofore been subject or a citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true, true and true faith and allegiance to the same and that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States and will, when required by law. And it continues. I am not necessarily saying that that oath is bad, but can you see the tension that could possibly be arise in there when we're called to be citizens of heaven and citizens of the God's kingdom first and foremost, that our fidelity it is to it alone. Those who are Christians who have come to this country, who have taken the oath, Uh, and have taken the oath, I should say, find this perplexing as they take very seriously, oftentimes when they come, as followers of Jesus, their oath to Jesus first. It is rather interesting. Followers of Jesus will come to a place, this is my point, where they'll they'll be called to part ways with the earth-bound kingdoms, countries, townships, cities, and ordinances which they live. There will be ways and there will be places. No matter who is in power, no matter what is transpiring, you may sit on one side of the aisle, and I'm talking politically, or sit on the other side of the aisle if you think that's really where you sit. But the reality is, is if we're kingdom dwellers, we don't sit on either aisle. We sit in the aisle with Jesus who points to his kingdom continually our allegiance is to jesus and our admonition for the government of uh of this of our state let me just say this and i'll get to it in a passage of scripture soon and nation will be consistent with scripture always and we're always to be as peace with those around us as much as possible yet if we are with jesus just as john was with jesus you may Welcome, and more than likely, you will welcome trouble at some point in your steady faithfulness to the Almighty King. I don't know about you. Maybe, uh, maybe if you have kids uh, uh, in your house, or maybe you had kids in your house, uh, you had these conversations. Yes, I know, but you live in this house. You ever had those conversations? Uh, we've had a few through the years. Hey, uh, Dad, can we... Yeah, let's, let's have a conversation. You know, their kingdom is that house over there. But this kingdom right here, as you live under this, in this kingdom, this is how it walks, this is how it talks, this is how it runs, right? Hey, can we, can we watch what they watch? You know, no. Because in our kingdom, we run this way. You guys are getting it, aren't you? I love that. You, you've had those conversations, right? I think in a very real way, that's what, in a very real way, Jesus is saying, your allegiance is to the kingdom. And John found his place and space in that where he, he welcomed trouble. I mean, in those times when our kids would ask, we would just, we would, 
explain as best we could, appropriately so, and we would hopefully try to remind them and nudge them in the way of the Lord. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with this? Well, first and foremost, if you're a follower of Jesus, we have fidelity to only one king. We have fidelity to only one king. And I believe that we're called to embrace our our status of faithfulness as servants, as sons and daughters in that kingdom. Now that, that seems pretty straightforward. So I want to remind you of a few other things uh, that Paul reminds us of and that Jesus lived into really well. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit to the governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those, those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. We, we can live peaceably in the places at times, uh, most of the time, obeying the, the positions of authority. But I also want to remind you of these. They're not meant to be conflicting. They're meant to be reminders of Matthew 10, 38, and 39. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. There's a, there's a place and a space that we're to be found in. Hebrews 11 says... All these people died believing that what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. So as we move towards prayer and closing out our service today, let me ask you a few questions. As I spoke, not my words, but did the Spirit... Uh, ping you at points uh, that somebody might actually think that your your allegiance to Jesus is lesser than what God would want it to be in this moment. Over this last week, did you send a meme? Did you send a text? Did you did you kind of point to some earthbound ways of living that might undermine the kingdom, undermine the king in your hearts? If so, I believe these are points of not just acknowledging in our heads, but actually confessing that Jesus is Lord. Recommitting your heart and life to the the kingdom and to the king in which he's called you to. Again, I want to just ask, could could it be that you you said, sent, or did something that would give someone the idea that King, John, King Jesus was not in control of your life. You were. You see how the change does? It's not necessarily government. It's King Jesus needs to be king. He needs to be Lord. Have you found yourself living or even defending a way of life which is not part of the kingdom? And you know it. Let's pray.